Yesterday uh, afternoon, we uh, uh, discussed in this session the, uh, the thesis uh, that I am uh, presenting uh, this week. And that is the thesis that contrary to most uh, contemporary corporate uh, theories of leadership, the, uh, the theory that fits best within the early history of Christianity is the model that the essence to a leader are not managerial skills or certain habits or certain elements of a personality, but rather his or her character, that uh, the leader is a virtuous person. And so today we consider, uh, we continue with the topic. Uh, the, uh, the lectures are titled, The Soul of a Leader, Insights uh, from, uh, uh, from Antiquity or Acuity from Antiquity. The title of today's lecture is The Soul of a Leader, Divested and Generous. In his histories, Herodotus relates a story about Nitocris, queen of Babylon in the sixth century BC. After he describes the various defensive measures she took in order to protect the city, he tells us that she built her tomb above the most popular gate of Babylon. On the exterior of the tomb, she engraved the following words. If any future kings of Babylon are in need of money, let him open this tomb and take as much as he desires, but he should not open it unless he is in need, for it will be all the worse for him. In doing so, she set a trap. As Herodotus continues with his account, we learn that the queen's resting place remained undisturbed until Darius the Great. Common belief in funerary maledictions that prohibited passing under a corpse or violating a tomb kept the gate from being used for normal traffic. Although irritated by this uh, limitation within the city's infrastructure and tempted by the engraving that invited any needy king to avail himself of Nitocris's riches, Darius at first left the tomb alone. Eventually, he could not contain his avarice any longer and broke into Nitocris's tomb. However, instead of treasure, he found only her corpse with this scolding inscription. If you had not been greedy for wealth and sordidly consumed with gain, you would not have opened the graves of the dead. Herodotus's account became a typical example of avarice in antiquity. Emperor Julian the Apostate, who announced his conversion from Christianity to paganism in AD 361, used it in this manner in his second oration the heroic deeds of Constantius. As he begins his treatise on the true virtuous king, Julian discusses in particular the question of wealth, power, and kingship. He states that neither wealth nor power acquired or bestowed make a king. Possession of the symbols of the monarchy do not make one a king. Only virtue, he argues, makes a king. Power to rule might be bestowed upon one, but virtue cannot be bestowed, and one cannot rightly be called king if he rules autocratically without wisdom and its associated virtues. A ruler, one who is king only by title, but not by virtue, might very well have power, but he becomes puffed up, hungry for gain, and eventually suffers collapse. The dangers of power led Julian to treat the vice of avarice and its cost. For him, power is the door to the unbridled drive to indulge oneself. He speaks of mighty, victorious kings who mastered whole nations that paid them tribute. Yet these rulers were themselves slaves in a still more shameful degree of pleasure, money, and wantonness, insolence, and injustice. The ruler that is enslaved by lust for pleasure, he says, and cannot control his temper and appetites of all sorts, but is compelled to succumb to trivial things, is not truly mighty and lacks the type of strength that is honored and revered. 
If such is the king's character, he lacks true riches. And though he is always acquiring wealth, he is forever in want, never satisfied. Some humans and beasts are satisfied with simple daily needs, food, clothing, and shelter. But those who are tortured by the desire and fatal passion for money must suffer a lifelong hunger and depart from life more miserably than those who hunger for a day's meals. Darius, a ruler who in his mind was not completely without virtue, yet he suffered from an insatiable destructive appetite for wealth. His avarice drove him to become a common grave robber, and the great king became known as a huckster or a peddler. Insatiable hunger for grain weakens a person and brings them down from authentic virtuous strength. Following these thoughts, Julian provides a rich summary of the character of a true king. In relation to the issue of greed, he helps us understand further his concept of the virtuous king. He now turns to describe what in his own words is the man who is good and kingly and great-souled. Such a man loves wealth, but not the kind associated with gold or silver. Instead, values the true goodwill of his friends and service without flattery. He shares his bounty with others, taking no pleasure in his greater wealth, but rather finding gladness in his ability to do good to many and to bestow upon all what they may lack. It is this treasure that a true king claims for himself. He sets an example for others by refraining from all pleasure and having no desire for money. As a good king, he procures relief from great evil by putting down, among other troubles, luxury. And by excluding greed for boundless wealth, he nurtures peace and harmony within his domain. Julian, just prior to his treatise on the great king, praises virtue again building a concept of wealth consistent with wisdom. Since virtue alone makes true kings, he believes its preeminence indicates its divine origin from Zeus and saying that it is implanted in the soul and makes the soul happy and kingly and statesmanlike and gifted with true generalship and generous and truly wealthy. The soul is not rich because it owns gold, couture clothing, jewelry, or acres of the best real estate. Instead, the soul is only truly wealthy when it has something superior to money and property, when it has something that the gods themselves cherish. The soul is only truly wealthy when it possesses something that provides enduring safety and is secure within the soul. What is this treasure that excels all else in value? Virtue. His own words fail him at this point as he tries to capture virtue's inestimable worth. At a loss, he turns to Plato's Athenian stranger who says, all the gold beneath the earth and above ground is too little to give in exchange for virtue. The person who has virtue, he says, finding now his own words again, is truly wealthy, truly of noble birth, and the only one truly king among all contenders. Long before Julian, when Homer discussed the virtues of kings, we find a broad list. The ideal king, much like Odysseus, Nestor, Menelaus, or Penelope in the Odyssey, is among other things gentle, kind, like a father, just, impartial, balanced and equitable, hospitable, blameless, pious, and given to good governing that leads to the prosperity of the governed. The vices characteristic of faltering kings are just as plentiful, and we see them both in the Iliad and the Odyssey. This is one of the tensions in Homer. Although ideally kings like Agamemnon and Achilles are the best of the Achaeans, the mundane reality is that to some measure, some more or less than others, each king is a confluence of virtue and vice. Homer is constantly attempting to solve which virtues are more essential and which vices more excusable. 
For example, Odysseus is not a perfect king, but he is certainly more kingly than Penelope's suitors. They are self-indulgent, overbearing, arrogant. They devour Odysseus's food, wine, and belongings without ever being satisfied, eating him out of house and home. Though they are greedy themselves, they have the gall to claim that Odysseus, dressed as a beggar, has a greedy belly. As a matter of fact, the other beggar in the poem also, according to them, has a greedy, insatiable belly. Homer, through irony, makes the suitor's own insatiable appetites known. Since Homer's Iliad is the prequel to the Odyssey, we find much of his philosophy about ideal kingship anticipated there. As it opens, the wrath of Achilles is immediately censored, for it seems that his being, stronger than others, works in his favor with the gods, as does his patience and belief that wealth is not worth his life. In contrast to this moderate, even positive image of Achilles, Homer's epic seems rather focused upon a weakness within Agamemnon and seems most central to the epic's concern with kingly vice. Recall that Chrysis, the daughter of Trojan priest Chrysus, is held captive by Agamemnon after, her, after he kidnaps her uh, as a prize of war. Only after the god Apollo punishes the Greeks with a plague does Agamemnon reluctantly return the priest's daughter. However, his cravings for a female captive will not cease. His lust for a prize is insatiable. So he turns around and takes another woman, Brissais, for his ally, from his ally, Achilles, who apparently has intentions to marry her. This act sets the two kings against one another and nearly results in the failure of their military campaign. Homer allows us a peek into a portion of the wretched heart of Agamemnon in four scenes. In one episode, the words are Agamemnon's own, and they display that his own arrogance and pride motivated his taking of Brissais. I will take Brissais, he says to Achilles, so that you will discern how much I am your better. He takes her in order to prevent others from thinking they are his equal. He makes an example of Achilles by lording over him. Agamemnon praises himself while others say that Achilles is better than Agamemnon. In the second and third scenes, one before and one after Agamemnon's arrogant words, Achilles speaks his own response to Agamemnon's intended misdeed. The mighty warrior king makes two public statements concerning the area in which Agamemnon is the most vile person in the entire world. Greed. First, Achilles proclaims that he, of all men, is most covetous. Here, I think, Stanley Lombardo has appropriately captured the feeling of the moment. He translates Achilles' saying to Agamemnon, and where do you think, son of Atreus, you greedy glory hound? The magnanimous Greeks are going to get another prize for you. Do you think we have some kind of stockpile in reserve? Second, Achilles describes Agamemnon to his face as draped in shamelessness and greed for gain. The fourth episode is the speech against Agamemnon by Thersites, a Greek soldier. Exasperated by the king's continuing greed, he asks him, what do you still crave? Amazed that he still wants more after all the king has the, the soldier recounts the extent of his wealth. Then he asks, if in light of his immense wealth, does he still want more gold, more slaves? As Julian will write centuries later, the cup of the greedy is never full enough. Again, the ancients show the connections between vices, arrogance, shamelessness, and unyielding avarice are inseparable. Historians and poets in antiquity, even apostate emperors reflecting upon true kingship, composed warnings about the destructive power of greed. It nullifies kingship, 
Julian's perspective helps to expose its complexity. Those who covet money have other vices. They are enslaved by pleasure, hubris, shamelessness, insolence, violence, and injustice. The drive to acquire the first produces the latter five. They are also impotent to control their rage or their hunger for a variety of appetites. One symptom of avariciousness in rulers is that they rule autocratically, lacking wisdom and other virtues. Autocratic rulers manifest the same uncontrollable compulsion to satisfy inward, insatiable appetites. Despots are foolish, lack other virtues, and are not kings in truth. Seeking to be masters, their greed masters them and leaves them impotent. Plato says as much, demonstrating how unquenchable avarice completely debases a person. Having stated that a craving for wealth causes a person to be consumed only with daily gain, scorning all else, he asserts that insatiable greed for gold and silver makes people willing to put up with any and every occupation and device, be it noble or degrading. Provided it will enrich them, greed makes them perform any action, holy or unholy, even downright disgraceful, without a qualm, provided only that it gives them the ability, like a wild animal, to eat and drink every conceivable kind of thing, not to mention giving them complete satisfaction in every possible way of their sexual desires. Plato makes the explicit connection between insatiable greed and the soul of a tyrant in his republic. A tyrant is made when a ruler allows the virtues, the better desires of his soul, reason and gentleness to be lulled to sleep, to fade, and instead allows the beauty and the beastly and savage part of the soul to fully awaken and leap forward. This part of the soul seeks only to satisfy its desires for all the pleasures, including food, wine, sex, power, money. In search for such satisfaction, there is nothing it will not do, for it is shameless and irrational. If a leader is tyrannical, an insatiable thirst for pleasure is at root. And for the context's greater concern, this means the ruler will have a reign characterized by injustice. In his shameless, unmitigated drive for whatever pleasure he craves, the ruler will ignore established legal, moral, or religious codes and ordinances. Plato is not alone in making the link between greed, its corrupting power, and the tyrannical leader. Sophocles, the ancient composer of Greek tragedies, for example, writes the broadly held axiom into one of his plays. Early in the tragedy, he, in, his, in the tragedy, he has Creon, the ruler of Thebes, express the complete corruption that comes with greed. Nothing is so evil, he says, as love of money. Nothing so evil as love of money ever grew to be current among humans. This destroys cities. This drives people from their home. This trains and warps honest minds to set themselves to works of shame. This teaches people to practice villainies and to know every act of unholiness. Creon protests, nevertheless, that his own mind is free from the control of money. He even falsely accuses Tiresias, the blind prophet of Thebes, and other seers of being greedy. However, the prophet truthfully rebukes Creon, much like Nathan corrects David. He declares that Creon, like all tyrants, loves shameful gain. As we might imagine, in antiquity, speeches were also written against greedy tyrants. During the interim rule of the 30 tyrants, a pro-Spartan oligarchy that governed Athens following the Peloponnesian War, atrocities were common. After their reign, when they were put on trial, Lysias, one of the 10 orators, composed a speech against one of the tyrants. 
Eratosthenes and his group. He accuses the tyrants of killing Athenians without so much as a thought, but being very concerned about money. They went to shameless extremes, for they had that sordid love of gain. Even after having already violently looted Athenian wealth, Xenophon in his Hellenica confirms that the oligarchy killed Athenians for their riches and records Critias, another member of the Thirty, stating that the cruelty of an oligarchy is no less than that of a single tyrant. Both, in their greed, remove opponents who interfere with their desire for wealth. My point in this review of greed in ancient and Greek-Latin thought has been to demonstrate the overwhelming concern with the vice, particularly as it related to tyrannical rulers and leaders, and to highlight that the concern was not only with the vice itself, but with the web of vices inseparably woven into it. A leader is never just greedy. They are hateful, unjust, self-absorbed, shameless, impious, and arrogant. They sink to unthinkable lows in satisfying their lusts, even to the depths of murder and robbing the dead. In communicating the vice of avarice, the Greeks has a, had a rich, diverse vocabulary at their disposal. It is to one of the word groups that I wish to turn our attention now. We saw it in Herodotus's account of Darius, the grave robber, as he was sordidly consumed with gain. We saw it in the prophet's rebuke of that tyrant Creon, who loves shameful gain. And we witnessed it again within the oligarchy of the Thirty, who had that sordid love of gain. The usage of this family of terms in the above context and in relation to the entire tradition concerning greed helps to inform us about one of the Apostles Paul's required virtues for those desiring to assume the office of elder or deacon. We find the terminology in his list within 1 Timothy. But that is not all. Peter also requires the same virtue expressed with the same terminology in his first epistle. Elders are to be free from the love of money, not greedy for sordid gain. By the writing of Peter's first epistle, then, the qualifications for elder, the virtues that were to mark an elder, were shared by both the apostle to the Gentiles and the one to the Jews. Early Christianity, when it imagined the ideal leader, did so within an environment that had a long productive history of thinking carefully about the demeanor of leaders. Behind the pen of both Peter and Paul is the concern that the avaricious leader is a person plagued with many destructive vices, all culminating in arrogance, cruelty, oppression, and personal injury. It is no surprise then that we find Paul describing greed as idolatry. And later on in his instructions to Timothy, telling him what a pernicious thing the love of money is and how in its place he should choose the riches of satisfaction with holy simplicity. The worst that Timothy or any leader who claims to be Christian could do, of course, would be to put the costume of godly leadership for the greedy purposes of financial gain. It is telling that when the Didascalia Apostolorum treats Paul's teaching on the bishop on greed, its concern is that the leader not use the community's resources all for himself. He should not furnish himself with luxuries or pleasures. Apparently, this was a problem. Instead, as a good steward living simply with the community's funds, furnishing himself only with food, clothing, and necessities, the bishop is to provide for the widows, orphans, the distressed, and strangers with an open hand because he loves them. Origen shared a similar concern. Those who aspire to leadership for the sake of gain 
and misuse funds given by the community out of piety. Do not desire a noble task. Instead, they are intoxicated with glory and intemperately puffed up with it. As we have just seen in 1 Timothy, Paul presents godliness and satisfaction with simple minimal possessions as the opposite of greed. He also teaches that the goal between the churches should be equality of means. The implication is that the elder, rather than being greedy, finds contentment easily with minimal items in equitable amount. The contentment that Paul has in mind must be based on the absence of the foolish and harmful desires, along with the love and eagerness for which money is pursued and which are the hallmark of greed. Still in another place, Paul teaches that since God is able and will provide for all of their needs, that is to enrich them, the Corinthians should perform righteousness by abounding in free, generous, cheerful giving to the needs of the poor. After all, Scripture teaches that righteous people give freely to the poor, and as the result, the fruit of their generosity will be abundant. The connection Paul makes between errant affections and passions and greed echoes material in the Greco-Roman tradition. But more than that, it reflects themes in the teaching of Jesus. We find that the issue of leaders and greed is very much on Jesus' mind, particularly in Luke's gospel, as are the questions of desire and contentment. And in addition, we find in Jesus the reverberation of the Old Testament's and Paul's ideas regarding generous, abundant giving to the poor out of the sufficient supply that God gives. In the words of Jesus that we will examine, however, in each case, Jesus is engaging with leaders, either those who are greedy or those he wishes to shelter from greed. I wish to draw our attention specifically to Luke 12, because there Jesus shows his disciples how they should guard themselves against greed and because it returns us to our earlier interest in Gregory's lesson on the priest's ascetic life. Anthony the Great heard this teaching of Jesus deep in his heart. They announced the priority that should be given to pursuing excellence in the virtues of one's soul rather than seeking physical pleasure. He recognized physical necessities but warned against being dragged down by pursuits of bodily passions. Jesus' lesson begins as the Lord responds to a request for him to intervene into a family's greedy quarrel about the division of an inheritance. Using the occasion as a teaching moment, Jesus instructs his disciples to be vigilant against all varieties of avarice because life is not comprised of an overabundance of possessions. Employing a parable, Jesus explains that a greedy person searching for the ideal life in wealth craves and runs after an overabundance of possessions intending to hoard them while all the time worrying that there will never be enough. Riches, food, drink, clothing, and long life are all desired by the greedy. Such people foolishly seek easy, perfect, long lives through riches, but they always die far too soon, never having found true life, utterly poor in the things valued by God. In contrast to the greedy, the disciples are not to worry or to be afraid about food or clothing. They should not run after or seek such things, nor allow the collection of possessions to be the driving passion of their hearts. Instead, they should be content in their faith that God will provide abundantly for their needs, so that liberated from anxiety about possessions, they will seek the kingdom. Cyril of Alexandria, as he meditates upon the paragraphs we have just summarized, helps us to understand that we are eavesdropping on a lesson Jesus is giving to his disciples on the ideal spiritual life. Jesus liberates his disciples from bondage to greed that shows itself in the insatiable thirst for more, so that they may be free to pursue true life. In his own commentary on Luke, Cyril writes, how carefully and with what great skill Jesus brings the lives of the holy apostles to spiritual excellence. 
And with them, he benefits us too because he desires all humankind to be saved and to choose the wise and more excellent life. For this reason, he makes them abandon unnecessary anxiety and does not allow a care-worn and frenetic diligence that would make them wish to gather what exceeds their necessities. In these matters, excess adds nothing to our benefit. He did not simply say, do not be anxious, but added, about your life. That is, do not give much attention to these things, but devote your earnestness to things of far greater importance, desires for food and clothing. In turn, are followed immediately by a savage crowd of other desires, the result being apostasy from God. It is our duty, therefore, to stay away from all worldly desires and rather to take delight in those things which please God. Jesus' teaching on greed in Luke 12 concludes in verses 33 to 34, and it is here that he presents the cure for avarice founded on the instructions he has just given on faith, desires, and God's sufficiency. It is here that he explains the source of true life, a life lived contrary to greed. Jesus says to his disciples, sell your possessions and give alms. Make money belts for yourselves which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Ambrose helps us to understand the exchange that takes place between earthly and heavenly riches when goods are sold and alms are given. If you clothe the naked, he says, you clothe yourself with righteousness. If you bring the stranger under your roof, if you support the needy, he procures for you the friendship of eternal habitations. This is no small recompense. You sow earthly things and receive heavenly. Behind the words of Jesus lie the solution to avarice, the opposite of the vice prohibited among leaders by both Peter and Paul, and association with heavenly values. Jesus is calling for a radical change in the philosophy of the disciples regarding their desires, treasure, wealth, and the constitution of life. True, eternal, impregnable treasure is heavenly, and possession of this heavenly wealth constitutes the ideal life. Such wealth, true life, is not gained by desiring or running after and cleaving to earthly possessions, but gained through a heart that has its affection set completely on storing up heavenly treasures. The disciples are to manifest such affection by selling belongings and charitable giving. Early Christian ascetics believed that divesting themselves of vain possessions in and of itself was not the ultimate goal. They thought that through divestiture and by living the disciplined existence of one who was impoverished, they fortified themselves in their calling to exchange corrupting devilish inner attitudes and passions of the heart for incorruptible ones. In this inner conversion of desires through bodily sacrifice, they progressed from a deadly path to true life. One who had obeyed Jesus was already really alive and was immune to death. It is within this system of faith that Abba Macarius, a desert father, speaks, pardon me, these words. If slander has become to you the same as praise, poverty as riches, deprivation as abundance, you will not die. Indeed, it is impossible for anyone who firmly believes, who labors with devotion, to fall into the impurity of the passions and be led astray by the demons. Julianus Pomerius, in his fifth century, The Contemplative Life, makes the same point. The just man, he writes, who is captivated by a desire for heavenly things, does not at all feel it, whether he possesses all temporal things or loses them, while the wicked man does not lose without sorrow what he possesses with delight. 
These teachings help set the stage for our reading of Jesus' words to the Pharisee. In chapter 12 of Luke, Jesus uses wealth as an analogy for true life. But in the previous chapter, when correcting a Pharisee, he used the analogy of interior cleansing. The Pharisee's interior, his heart, his desires were full of greed and wickedness, and he was concerned only with outward ceremonial cleansing at a meal. His heart was consumed with wealth, and his only attachment to religion, to spirituality, was outward. He had affections for two things, having wealth and looking good. This is why Jesus labels him greedy and wicked. Like our Greco-Roman literature, he has shown us greed never travels by itself. Additional vices like hypocrisy and other internal filth come along for the ride. Jerome understood this and tells the story of how the ascetic Paul of Egypt was betrayed by his avaricious brother-in-law during the persecutions of Decius and Valerian. He writes in his Life of Paul that the brother-in-law was motivated by greed because a thirst for gold will compel the human heart to commit any crime, any sin, even that of selling out a family member. Jesus mentions in Luke 11 that the, Pharisee particularly that the Pharisees particularly neglect justice and the love of God, greedily loving instead fame, notoriety, and acclaim. The most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus identifies the cleaning solution required for the Pharisees' polluted heart when he says, so give for alms those things that are within and see everything will be clean for you. Jesus means that the Pharisee should give away avarice, divest himself of his passion for riches, and cleanse his heart of greed and the hypocrisy that is paired with it. Because that is what resides within him, and in their place he should put justice and the love for God. If he does this, he will be entirely, truly clean and will need no longer to be consumed with the collection of hoarding of wealth or in the mere false outward appearance of godliness. He will be godly in truth. Cyril of Alexandria readily highlights the greed and avarice of the Pharisees and denies that they lived virtuously. What cleansing medicine for their illness does the Lord offer, he asks, he tears their avarice up by the root by teaching them to give alms so that by attaining purity in mind and heart, they might become true worshipers. In the episodes of Luke 11 through 12, Jesus is calling for spiritual leaders, a Jewish one and the disciples, to adopt a drastic reorientation of the whole religious life, internal and external, soul and body, Desires and passions contrary to greed and outward appearance are to be awakened and nurtured. Yes, the disciples are to rid themselves of all belongings, but as the Pharisees were instructed, this involves divesting one's heart, one's soul of greed. Physical bodily action is also required. They are to sell their possessions so that the procedure may be so that the proceeds may be given to the poor. They are not to seek other possessions or more money with what is gained by the trade. Their hearts, unlike those of the Pharisees and the brother who sought an inheritance, are not to be consumed with gaining more. Their desires, their appetites are to be inverted. They are to exchange their passions to seek gain and hold earthly pleasures for desires to separate these pleasures from themselves and to provide for the needs of the impoverished. This is what the desert father Isidore meant when he said, it is impossible for you to live according to God if you love pleasures and money. As the disciples sell and give, as they seek the kingdom, as they gain treasure in heaven, they store up treasure in heavenly purses, for they are not only divesting themselves of earthly possessions, held in disintegrating purses, but they are also divesting and cleansing their hearts of the vice and filth of greed. Their desires, their hearts now follow after the treasure of being rich in what God values, the treasure of loving God and justice. It is these treasures that now fill their new incorruptible purses. 
Another desert ascetic underscores how the movement away from greed and avarice to heavenly life is a choice based on the type of life and wealth one ultimately desires. He says, A brother who followed the life of stillness in the monastery of the cave of Abba Savas came to Abba Elias and said to him, Abba, give me a way of life. The old man said to the brother, In the days of our predecessors, they took great care about these three virtues, poverty, obedience, and fasting. But among, among monks nowadays, avarice, self-confidence, and great greed have taken charge. Choose whichever you want. The apostate emperor Julian discussed above recognized that the ideal king from his greater wealth should give to those with needs and benefit his citizens. He should not be greedy and should put down a drive for personal luxury. Jewish teaching like we find in Tobit emphasizes the importance of charitable giving as well. It pleases God and prepares one for the day of judgment. This text written 200 years before Christ might very well have informed the contemporary perspective on charitable giving held by the disciples prior to Jesus' words. But there is a remarkable difference between the Greco-Roman and intertestamental Jewish tradition and the perspective of Jesus. What Jesus says in light of Tobit operates like a, you have heard it was said, but I say to you formula. Julian and Tobit teach a practice of charitable giving in proportion to one's wealth. One should give out of one's abundance. But Jesus' teaching is radical. The disciples are to sell their personal property, everything they own, and donate the proceeds. Contextually, they are to enter into poverty here on earth to find heavenly treasure. So the desert monastic Hypercheus says, amongst treasure is voluntary poverty. Lay up treasure in heaven, brother, for there are the ages of quiet and bliss without end. It is quite common for readers of Jesus' words to employ the language of hyperbole to describe the rhetorical flavor of his teaching. Jesus, these readers say, could not mean his words literally, for no one could live without possessions. Recall that the 72 disciples were also told by Jesus to go about their mission without purse, bag, or sandals. Jesus was serious when he said that. He was not being hyperbolic. They were to take no supporting funds nor any belongings other than one tunic. The hospitality of others would support them, providing what they needed. Recall, too, that they were joyful upon their return, and they assured Jesus that they had lacked for nothing. Only Luke records the dramatic words to the disciples that they are to sell and give. All three synoptics record, however, the equally strong words to the rich young man that Luke identifies as a ruler, perhaps a synagogue leader or a member of the Sanhedrin. But Luke does not care to say. It is important, however, for his account and our study that he was a ruler, in the Lucan passage we have already studied, he makes the same emphasis. Luke is concerned with the problem of leaders and greed. <coughs> Pardon me. Rulers, Pharisees, disciples. This gospel account also returns us to Gregory's asceticism. It was a reading of the story of the rich young man that started Anthony the Great on his ascetic life in the deserts of Egypt. In each gospel, Jesus tells the ruler that although he has kept the commandments, one thing remains for him to do. He must sell his possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. If he does this, Jesus promises, he will have treasure in heaven, and then he should come and follow him. In each version, he sadly refuses to obey Jesus and turns away. This leads to teaching on how difficult it is for the rich and the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We might pause here to highlight that the man is a ruler, and this is no small thing, especially against the background of Greco-Roman moral teaching on wealth. Jesus is speaking into that tradition of moral teaching in a radical fashion. 
Affluent leaders and kings familiar with that moral tradition would be an important audience for this teaching. Yet the third century Christian theologian Tertullian reads Jesus' words to the rich ruler as also speaking directly into Judaism as Jesus expands upon the law and the prophets. Jesus in Tertullian's mind introduced a higher ethic. In speaking to the ruler, Jesus validates the continuing authority of the Old Testament and its ethical teaching which included throughout the law and the prophets instructions on giving to the poor. The ruler believed that he had sufficiently attended to the poor in light of the Old Testament, and this was a matter of pride for him. When Jesus speaks his offensive words, commanding him to, com to perform complete divestiture of possessions and complete donation to the poor, he does not rescind the Old Testament. Tertullian argues, but retains it and then enlarges the ethical standard for his followers. The ruler's contributions have not been adequate. Jesus has moved the line. There are these are just a few episodes in the Gospels in which people were told by Jesus to sell all and give all. One such episode recorded once in each synoptic Gospel is the case of the rich young ruler. He is the only one addressed. Another episode recorded only once by Luke is the case of the disciples. Jesus' words to both the ruler and the disciples are not hyperbolic. They are meant to be taken literally, radically, scandalously as a higher ethic by those Jesus addressed. Such a reading is indicated by the manner in which the mission of the 72 was carried out and the literal manner in which the Rikyon ruler understood the words of Jesus. The Lord's words were deemed so unreasonable, so costly by the ruler that he walked away and Jesus did not correct his understanding. He went on to talk about the difficulty regarding the rich and heaven. We should in this vein also read the words to Peter of Peter to the Lord in Luke 18, the same chapter in which Jesus addresses the rich ruler. He says, we have left our own things and followed you. Another saying of Jesus recorded by Luke appears just as scandalous. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all that you possess. It is the literal force of these texts that inspired the early ascetics. Jesus did not speak these words to everyone, however. He spoke them to particular individuals or groups, a ruler, a Pharisee, the disciples. And when he spoke these words, he intended them to be followed literally by those leaders and exemplars. But the application of Jesus' words in early Christianity is not monolithic. The fundamental question concerned whether one's heart was completely content, whether one's desires were fully satisfied with heavenly, eternal realities and treasures. Are their affections for their possessions of such a minuscule intensity that if commanded, they would willingly sell them? And are their affections for the poor of such a mighty intensity that they would give all to them? They must be this unattached. They must be this generous. Jerome, in concluding the life of Paul the ascetic, contrast the sad, pathetic difference between the spiritual wealth of Paul, who entered into the life of voluntary poverty and pursued virtue, and the spiritually impoverished rich. When he writes that Paul is dead and buried, he says to those who have run after riches and forgotten generosity, Paul lies covered with worthless dust, but he will rise again to glory. On the other hand, over you are only raised costly tombs, for both you and your wealth are doomed to burning. The ascetics understood that Jesus' concerns were best lived out in a life that renounced both passion and possession. But others thought that denial of passion could be authentic while possessions remained. In this case, Jesus' concern was not with earthly riches or with the leader who is wealthy per se. His concern was with the leader's heart, the leader's soul, in the third century, Clement of Alexandria sets forth this perspective. Although he prefers that the riches were gained prior to conversion, a rich ruler can certainly be numbered among the holy if the following conditions are true. 
if he does not cling to his riches and would willingly renounce them if called upon to do so, if his almsgiving is generous, if in other regards he lives a life rich in virtue. Clement, however, would not condone the behavior of those who are perpetually on the lookout for more, bending downward, changed in the toils of the world. We also hear Jerome describing how the virtuous and wealthy Paula and Marcella embraced asceticism in a different manner, managing their assets wisely, refusing to indulge themselves, giving generously and abundantly to the poor, providing money as each had need in order to relieve poverty. Since before the end of the first century, early Christianity associated purity of character and authenticity of ecclesial office or gift with the absence of love for money and possessions. In the Didache, false apostles or prophets were known by their asking for money, but those who encouraged gifts for the poor were not to be judged. The community was to appoint only those who did not love money as bishops and deacons. Polycarp of Smyrna wrote the same thing to the church in Philippi, around 150. Deacons were not to be lovers of money. The Apostolic Constitutions, a church order dated to the late 4th century, when addressing the qualifications for bishops, agrees with the early teaching and adds that he should be frugal, not given to filthy lucre, and not one who admires the rich or hates the poor. According to Ambrose in his On the Duties of the Clergy, ecclesiastical leaders are to be merciful primarily to the poor. He helps leaders to put generosity in godly perspective. He writes, you give silver, he receives life. You give money, he considers it his fortune. Your coin makes up all his property. Finally, the words of the priest Julianus Pomerius helps the leader to appreciate the importance of the virtue for ministry. It's pretty simple. If the leader is addicted to the vice of covetousness, he or she cannot dissuade the avaricious from a love of money. The godly impact of the greedy would-be leader falls flat. Perhaps the words of Paul that close his first letter to Timothy, where we find his list of qualifications for elder, and where we can hear the words of the Lord in the Gospels offer our best conclusion. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Thanks.